Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. So we live in one of the most information-heavy societies in the history of the world. We have access not only to content around the world, uh, even in our pockets at any moment, but we can also reach back into history and we can find uh, information hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And you would think that with all this information and knowledge, we'd be one of the most enlightened and well-functioning societies ever, right? But we all know that we are nowhere close to that. We become more divided and polarized than ever. Objective truth and morality seem to be limited to a small group of people back in the Stone Age. And relativism and subjectivity are the new way of thinking and are the only way for our society to move forward and progress. We're constantly being influenced by media or politicians or corporations that are vying for our attention and our loyalty and our compliance to what they believe are the things that we need to do to operate in this world. So how can we remain faithful to the name of Jesus in this time of seeming chaos and lawlessness? What are we to do as faithful Christians? If we are going to conquer, if we are going to stand against the schemes of the evil one, we need to hold fast the teaching of Jesus. I'll say that again. If we are going to conquer, if we're going to stand against the schemes of the evil one, we need to hold fast to the teaching of Jesus. In verses 12 and 13 of our passage, we read, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, that you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So this message is from Jesus, who has a sharp two-edged sword. And the sword could be representative of the power and authority that Jesus carries. And the place where this church is, Jesus identifies as where Satan dwells and where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor, this region that we're looking at uh, with these seven churches. And it was the religious, it was the hub of religious worship for uh, the gods and even for Roman rulers. There were several temples and altars. Uh, to Zeus, the god of the sky, there was a temple to Dionysus, the god of wine and revelry. There was a temple to Demeter, who was the goddess of the harvest. There was a temple to Asclepios, the god of healing. 
uh, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and there was even a temple to Trajan, who was the Roman emperor. So if you wanted to go somewhere to worship a whole bunch of gods, you went to Pergamum. There was people coming and going all the time to worship. And the worship of these gods was a way of life. It was the fabric and social structure of the society in Pergamum. To not worship the gods, you would be a social outcast. Oftentimes, Christians were called atheists because they didn't worship the gods. Some of the Christians were persecuted because of their lack of worship in the temples. And as recorded here, at least one of the followers of Jesus, Antipas, was killed because of his faithful witness. So to be a Christian in this place at this time meant that you were most likely cut off from society. You were persecuted for your faith. And for some, it even cost them their life. But however faithful this church was, there were some who were not following the teachings of Jesus, but were following false teachers. In verses 14 and 15, we see Jesus saying, But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So between all the different commentaries, some said that there was two different groups in this church. There was the Balaamites and there were the Nicolaitans. Uh, some said that it was how the Balaamites or, or how, how Balaam had influenced Israel. The Nicolaitans were doing the same thing to the church in Pergamum. But whichever view is the actual correct one, what's... Uh, What's told here to us is that somehow the Nicolaitans were seducing the Christians in Pergamum to worship the gods there and to eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual morality. So to get a better picture of what exactly uh, is being talked about, if you remember back into the Old Testament, into Numbers, uh, in chapter 24. Israel's wandering through the desert, and they set up camp in, in Moab. And there's a king there of Moab named Balak, who doesn't want the Israelites there because he's afraid they're going to conquer him and take over his land, and then he's not going to be a king anymore. So he calls on the services of this pagan prophet named Balaam to curse the Israelites. But Balaam says that he can only say what the Lord tells him to say. And so instead of cursing the Israelites, Balaam actually blesses the Israelites three different times. And so, of course, this doesn't make Balak very happy. And so he sends Balaam away. Uh, but then in the next chapter, chapter 25, we see that actually Israel started uh, interacting with uh, the Moabite women, and they uh, eventually start 
worshiping their gods and engaging in sexual morality with the women and uh, eating food sacrificed to their idols. And then God judges uh, the Israelites and they repent of their sin. And then fast forward to verse 31 and we see Israel actually going uh, to war against the Midianites and the Moabites, two groups that were kind of close together in that region. And Israel ends up killing the five kings of Moab or of Midian. And they also kill Balaam. And so tradition holds that even though Balaam didn't curse the Israelites, he instructed Balak on how to make the Israelites unfaithful to their God by using the Midianite women to seduce the men of Israel to worship their gods and eat food sacrificed to idols. So just like Balaam instructed Balak to do that to the Israelite men, here we see the Nicolaitans doing that same thing in Pergamum to the people in that church. So the Nicolaitans were teaching in a way that attempted to reach a compromise between the Christian life and the cultural customs of the Greco-Roman society. They were possibly teaching the Christians in Pergamum to worship at the Temple of Trajan, to eat food sacrificed to idols, to engage in some of the extracurricular activities that went on in the temples. And as it says here, some of the Christians were allowing these false teachers to come in and influence them, and they began to engage in these activities, and they were living just like any other pagan in that society. So what could this look like for us today? Obviously, we don't have exactly the same temptations that these Christians do, at least not specifically. However, are there any areas in our life where we have begun to let other religious practices enter into our lives? Are we worshiping and praising God on Sunday, but worshiping other gods during the week? Are things like politics or our job or the desires of our flesh taking the place of God? Are we believing some of the false teachers of our day who tell us to strive for health and wealth and prosperity instead of pursuing God? Are we believing in a cheap version of the gospel that allows us to do whatever we want to do because once saved, always saved, right? Let the gospel, let the grace of the gospel abound. Or are we believing those who say that we need more than just to believe in the gospel and in Jesus Christ to be saved? Are we trying to add to our salvation? Or are we allowing our culture to shape our biblical worldview? Is the Bible the standard for which we need to orient our lives? Or does our culture influence the way we read and understand our Bibles? Are we bending the knee to the God of, of tolerance and acceptance? Or are we standing firm on the objective truths of God's Word? Recently, my uh, father 
uh, has been going to a church in Portland uh, that we used to attend when I was uh, a young child. And he's been pretty excited about getting to see some of his old friends and kind of rebuilding some relationships there. Um, and so one day I was scrolling through social media, as I do probably more often than I should. And uh, I came across uh, a post that a son of one of the men in this church had posted. And it was a video of a sermon. And the sermon was on Genesis and the creation account. And the sermon was given by a transgender woman during Pride Month. And it was about how God didn't only create male and female, but he created all genders, all the spectrum of genders that we have today. And my dad's friend had uh, commented on that, uh, on that video that his son posted, and he wrote, you are welcomed here because you are one of us. So that kind of, you know, shocked me a little bit. And so I, uh, I called my dad and I told him, you know, what I had looked at and what, and what he commented, uh, what his friend had, had written. And so um, prayerfully, my dad confronted his friend and said, hey, like, what's, what's, what's going on here? Like, what, what is this? <laughs> like, uh, this seems a little, a little sketchy. And my dad's friend, uh, who's one of the leaders uh, in this church, said, you know, the, me and the other leaders, we got together and we really, you know, studied this and looked into it. And we just, we, we, we came to the conclusion that there's just a lot of gray area with sexuality and everything in the, in the Bible. And so, you know, and, you know, my dad is a very uh, uh, concrete, very uh, logical thinker. And so he's like, but it, it, it says, it says right here, like, like you can't. You can't engage in those activities. And my dad's friend said something like, well, you know, if, if you want to sit down and study him with me, you know, we can. My dad's like, you know what? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Uh, and so obviously, like my dad and like the rest of us, we're pretty appalled to hear something like that, and, and rightly so. But this is just one example of how our culture has slowly infiltrated our church, at least in America and most of the Western world. It wasn't something that happened overnight, right? It was slow and slow and slow. And now we're seeing the effects of that. So how do we respond to someone that holds such a view like this, such an antithetical view to the teaching of Scripture? Well, we could echo the same words of Jesus, repent. The word repent is one of the most beautiful and important words found in Scripture. There's so much packed in to this word, and it's important to understand exactly what it means. It means to change one's mind, right? You turn from your sin, and you turn to God. And repentance is found throughout the Bible. And it shows us at least three things. One is how sinful we are, right? We all, like sheep, have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way, Isaiah 53. It shows us how holy God is, that he, his eyes 
cannot see evil and he cannot look at wrong. He can't even look at sin, it says in Habakkuk 1. But it also shows us how gracious God is, that if we confess our sins, if we repent, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's only by the grace of God through the life and death and resurrection of our son Jesus that we can find forgiveness of our sins. We have all sinned against a holy God, and the penalty for that sin is death. But God, through his love, allowed his son Jesus to take that penalty of sin on himself so we can be clothed with his righteousness and be cleansed from our sins by his blood. We don't deserve this unmerited grace. We didn't do anything to earn it. It's a free gift from God. And if we repent and turn from our sin and turn to God, he's faithful to forgive us. And that's true for anybody. No matter how sinful you think you are, no matter what you have done, Forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ for all who repent and believe. There's another way that we can respond uh, to false teaching and to guard against it. We need to know what false teaching looks like and sounds like so we can recognize it and either refute what the person's saying or resist it. Now, I'm not advocating that you all start binge-watching TBN or go on uh, and watch a whole bunch of heretical and false teachers. Uh, That would not be a very fruitful use of your time. But I would strongly encourage and recommend that you know your Bibles well. Get into the Word and study it. Listen to solid biblical teachers. So when you hear something that sounds a little off or something doesn't quite line up with what you've been studying and reading, your spidey sense starts to go off a little bit, or this little alarm goes off in your head, and you say, whoa, is that really what Jesus is teaching or saying? Or is this person maybe twisting or manipulating the scriptures? We need to be trained to hear and understand what the Word of God says so we can hear and identify false teaching. And we can either stay away from it or we can engage with it and refute it. And for those who don't repent and turn from their sin, the very strong warning, Jesus will war against them with the sword from his mouth. He will speak his judgment, and it will be final. And for those of us who hold to the teaching of Jesus, we will conquer. In verse 17, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This conquering is not that 
of victory finally achieved at the end of life. Rather, it's a picture of a believer who from the beginning of his faith in Christ to the end of his life stands victorious because he keeps overcoming whatever the enemy has to offer. Let me say that again. This conquering is not that of victory finally achieved at the end of life, the seeming to wait for all the way at the end. Rather, it's a picture of a believer who from the beginning of faith in Christ to the end of their life, they stand victorious because they keep on overcoming whatever the enemy has to offer. The hidden manna is supposed to uh, have these hearers from this church, as well as us, be reminded of the manna that God provided for the Israelites when they were wandering through uh, the wilderness. It's symbolic of a future reward. It's an allusion to Christ as the true manna the bread of life, and it represents present satisfaction for believers with this spiritual bread as a foretaste to future fullness. We taste it in little pieces here and there on earth, and we will fully experience it when we are with Jesus again. And like I said, this connection here is not just for a future reward, but it's a promise for now as well as into the future. And this white stone with a new name, man, there were so many ideas on what this was. It was just like, oh, it was crazy. But the one that seemed to have the most detail and make the most sense um, that I came across Um, was that this white stone was symbolic of a ticket. And the ticket was a white stone with the person's name written on it. And they would receive it from the Roman Empire. And it would gain them access to the special feast. Typically, it was for a victor of the games. So they had these games, just like we have the Olympics coming up in a few weeks. They had these games where they would have various events, and the winner of an event would receive this ticket, this stone, this white stone with their name written on it, and they would have access to this special feast. The name written on the stone in this passage that we're reading tonight also has the recipient's name on it, a new name, signifying their belonging to Christ. Just as we are a new creation and we are given a new heart, we are given a new name as a personal sign and mark of God's adoption of us. And we await the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. We who have put our faith and our hope in Jesus have been adopted into the family of God. We are co-heirs with Christ, the one who has already conquered sin, Satan, and death, 
and has adopted us into the family of God. And we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us, ready to be revealed at the last time. And while we wait for that inheritance, we are called to be faithful to the name of Jesus so we can withstand the schemes of the evil one. And we can do that in three ways, and there's probably a ton more, but I just went with three because it sounded nice. Uh, First, we need to be praying. We need to be asking, first and foremost, for forgiveness from our sins. We know that we are forgiven, uh, ultimately, by the work of Jesus on the cross. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, even after that acceptance, uh, we still continue to sin. At least I do. Uh, And so we are in constant need of forgiveness. And so we pray and ask God for forgiveness. And we also pray for perseverance to withstand the attacks of the enemy. And we also pray for opportunities to share the gospel with those who haven't heard it. Secondly, we can withstand the schemes of the evil one and be faithful to the name of Jesus by knowing the word of God. We need to study our Bibles. We need to read other books and listen to teachers to help us understand our Bibles better. And we also need to be in community where we are seeking to know the Word of God more fully and completely. And thirdly, we need to engage in our culture. We need to seek ways and opportunities to have conversations with those who don't know Jesus. Maybe it's our neighbors, our coworkers, our employees, our customers, our relatives, our friends, whomever. People are not our enemy. Liberals are not our enemy. Homosexuals are not our enemy. Critical race theory is not our enemy. Our enemy is Satan. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Jesus said to his disciples right before he ascended to heaven, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I command you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. He has called us to make disciples of all nations and to teach all that he commanded. And he has promised that he will always be with us. May we go, therefore, and be faithful to the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whom we are more than conquerors through him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Let's pray. God, we thank you for... Uh, your word. We thank you that we can know you more uh, through the reading of your word, the study of your word. God, we thank you that we can uh, stand firm uh, on your uh, 
foundation. God, we thank you that we can have understanding. And God, we just pray for, uh, for protection, God, and perseverance uh, in this age of um, just so much opposition uh, to you and to your word. God, help us to um, not only be hearers of your word, but doers as well. God, equip us uh, through your Holy Spirit to uh, boldly proclaim with confidence the hope that we have within us. God, we thank you uh, for the faithful uh, men and women here who, who love you and seek to um, be faithful servants to you. Lord, may we uh, continue to grow in our knowledge and our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.